Welcome to the Wild Health Podcast. I'm Wendy John. How do you plan and implement a cloud business funding model? What will cloud healthcare in Australia look like in five years' time? How do we assist disrupted vendors and providers who are also really important players? These were just some of the hot topics at the inaugural CXO Healthcare Cloud Summit last week in Sydney, Australia. It was Australia's first CXO level event that really comprehensively dealt with the key trends in healthcare cloud management. Sessions targeted the technology, the reform, the funding that's required for the provision of comprehensive healthcare services via the cloud. There was excellent networking and a great view from the terrace, but fundamentally, the CXO Cloud Summit was an effort to progress some of the most pressing issues in the digital health industry today. A persistent question throughout was, what will it take for the sector to get a wriggle on and move to the cloud? Should a regulatory stake be put in the ground? I asked a few of the speakers. First cab off the rank was Danielle Bancroft, Chief Product Officer at Best Practice. I don't think it's so much a stake in the ground. And I also don't think that everyone has to start at the same time. It's more about, as I said, there are many different layers to the problem. Um, And so if we don't have some maturity around you know, the different pathways in terms of what needs to be put in place, then you're putting a stake in the ground for nothing. As I said, I can have an API live tomorrow. It doesn't solve interoperability. Um, And that's where we need to make sure that the other assurances line up so the work can all be delivered at once to get the value. US was a classic example. When they first went live, they had these great sparkling fire APIs and no one connected. So then you had something sitting there for ages because no one had built any smart on fire apps, no one had anything to actually connect in to show the value. Standing right next to Danielle Bancroft was CSIRO Business Development Manager Kate Ebrill, who also moonlights as a board member for HL7. So I asked Kate Ebrill, what do you think needs to happen? I think the key thing is around a very sensible roadmap around product and how you actually transition to that. So you can put a stake in the ground and not have the right roadmap to get there and you can actually create perverse incentives and not get the outcome that you want and actually further embed legacy or further embed tech debt into the market. So it's about saying, what's that roadmap? What's that transition? Having an agreed goal of where we want to be and then having an agreed time frame in which to do it because everyone will start at different points. But if we actually are very clear on what that journey is and very clear around the steps on that journey, people can come in at different points to it and we know the outcome that we're actually heading for. How far away are we from a roadmap? Um, I think it's about getting people to commit and pull the governance together to build a roadmap. We, um, in a workshop with the primary care software industry a month ago, created what we think is a three-year roadmap for fire transition within primary care. So it can be done. It's about getting all the players in the room, agreeing what the end goal that we want and starting to work towards it. And what do you really, really want to happen right now? I'd like to see governance around the data models that we've already started to agree and develop with industry. So how do we take those agreed data models and turn those into the fire standards and put the right governance in place to ensure they're adopted across the ecosystem? Who would ultimately be responsible, accountable for that? I think um, the state and federal governments need to put the governance in place, but ensure that that governance includes not only government jurisdictions, but also includes clinical and industry representatives and needs to be looking at the entire ecosystem. So not just, you know, state public health or federal, but the entire healthcare ecosystem. Do you think that the state-federal divide in health is up for the challenge? Um, 
I think they are. I think I've, this is probably the most mature conversation with 20 years in digital health. Um, I think in terms of the conversation we're having between states, territories and industry, um, we're talking about the right things. So it's how do we put the right, um, right conditions in place to actually now make it happen. So you've been in this sector for about 20 years. It's been in your, your, it's your space. Are you feeling more hopeful now than 10 years ago? I'm feeling way more hopeful now than 10 years ago. Um, so I started on the first ever electronic um, fast track Health Connect trial down in Tasmania in April 2002. Um, so I've been on this journey since then. And I think um, the level of um, investment that is happening from industry where they are seeing the benefit um, around how these standards actually support innovation um, and the fact that what's happening globally is also starting to change the local market. So yeah, I'm way more hopeful now than I have been and I'll just keep on going. <laughs> Kate Everill seemed to think that there is some kind of momentum right now that is unique. I think we're at a tipping point right now and it's about how do we harness the energy because industry is moving forward. If we don't actually coordinate that, we could end up just creating more legacy. Fire does not equal interoperability. It's the same story we've heard around, you've seen one V2, you've seen one V2. We can be at that same point with fire. We actually need to harness the effort, coordinate, collaborate and work together so we actually move forward in the same direction. If not, we will just end up with more legacy in the system. So yeah, we are at that tipping point. Danielle, do you think we're at a tipping point? I do. At the end of the day, industry has put a significant investment in over the last few years and there's been rapid acceleration in the innovation space. Um, there's a commitment to deliver. We've always got government initiatives and other work that we need to do for our customers, but we've all committed. I think it's now is the time, as Kate said, that we all have to work together, otherwise you're not going to get the outcomes you want. What's driving you nuts? I think what drives me nuts is that it's always a solution in search of a problem. People have these ultimate goals where they want interoperability, so they're trying to find the easiest and quick fix, the problem that's going to, you know, or the problem it can stick to. The, the reality is interoperability is, is not a solution for one thing, it's a solution for many, but it's also nuanced, as Steve said and it requires significant work in multiple areas. It's not just, let's stick an API in, let's put fire in and we've got a solution. So there was a sense of strategic foresight and possibility, but also some valid commercial concerns. Here's what some other delegates had to say. Hi, I'm Anup from Fluffy Spider Technologies. What's bugging you at the moment about that, this sector? Uh, well, uh, interoperability essentially because uh, that's what our focus is and uh, we're uh, a niche uh, digital health services firm and the products that we are building are uh, for the current uh, you know patient centric uh, products and uh, even though we are building interoperability into the heart of the, the, the services and the solutions that we create uh, adopting it into the market is a challenge and uh, hence we want the entire industry to adopt interoperability. What particularly is driving you nuts? <laughs> uh, I guess as, as one of the panelists mentioned, technical interoperability is, is a given. Everyone exactly knows what needs to be done, right? Uh, so it's, it's the layer above that, which is the, I don't know, the business challenges, the funding models, the government models of which we don't have much control over and there's only so much we can do to influence and it feels like especially in this sort of conference all the big names, all the CXOs they are speaking the same language 
but why are we so helpless? So, so <laughs> that's that's what I know. Does uh, the government need to take leadership and put a stake in the ground? Uh, I think so, especially because in Australia, health is a government-controlled uh, uh, sector. Um, so I think so, yes. Matt Moore, Head of Channels and Field CTO for Nutanix. What's frustrating you most about all of these conversations? Most frustrating thing is that we're still having a lot of conversations that we were having 20 years ago. Uh, we seem to make some progress, two steps forward, two steps back, and we continue to end up back in the same spot. Why are we doing that? I think there's a degree of changing landscape of political leadership on a continual basis. I also think that organisations are so consumed with the here and now that they don't have a chance to actually make substantial changes within their organisations. The stake in the ground became a repeated phrase throughout the event. Do we? Don't we? Carrot versus stick. How much more regulation can private industry stand? It's a complex dilemma. So I went to someone who knows a bit about interoperability. Graham Greaves, Fire Product Director. Graham, there's a lot of talk it seems to be happening at these conferences over and over. Yes, we need accountability. Yes, we need to find a business model. Do we just need to put a stake in the ground? The, the great thing about putting a stake in the ground is it forces everybody to actually focus on it. But the really difficult thing about putting a stake in the ground is if you get the wrong stake, it's a real big screw-up. Um, you know, if you put a technology stake in the ground, then some moron like me comes along and creates a new technology and everyone's left, uh, you know, left in the wake going, uh, what do we do now? Should, so, it, should it be outcome-focused rather than technology-focused? Um, I think the trouble is that... Uh, we totally need a stake in the ground, but it has to be the right stake, and there's a degree of prediction and forecast in choosing the right stake. So you need a lot of discussion, you need a lot of, you need adaptability in what the stake in the ground is, and that's really hard for government. And, and so I totally think that we need, I definitely think we need a stake in the ground, but I have no idea how we could decide what it is. There were many thought-provoking conversations happening throughout the entire day, both on and off stage. Here are a few snapshots of what some other attendees thought. What's driving you nuts at the moment? Nothing. I'm completely sane. That's really good. Do we need to put a stake in the ground? It depends how you spell steak. <laughs> if you're talking like meat, then like you can do what you like. Um, if you're talking um, piece of wood with a sharp end, um, it's complicated and it's commercial. And I think the panel did a really good job of being quite open with the commercial realities of why nothing's happening. And so it's a market failure. Governments are around to solve market failures. So um, maybe it's a government thing they need to work on. Very diplomatic, thank you. No, that's good. What are the implications for you, though? Questions for you right now. 
So I think we spent a lot of time working on the technology and we need to spend a bit of time focusing on the change and adoption of our end users. We've been technically capable for a long time, but the incentive to change out there in the health industry marketplace needs a bit of, needs a bit of attention. So in particular, we talked about the fact that we've got common data models and standards that enable interoperability, but the uptake for especially primary care with cloud-based systems has been lacking. And I think rather than telling them that we've got a better technology solution, we actually need to hit them at their business model and provide them some incentive to go and change. And that in turn will drive more uptake of these systems, which will incent the vendors to put some time and attention onto modernising their platforms rather than just layering in additional features. But incentivisation is a contentious model. Some say it doesn't work. So for those who say that incentivisation of general practice doesn't work, I would hark back to the EPIP that has initially started with the fax machine and then uptake of electronic records and most recently with the PIPQI with respect to data sharing initiatives. It does work um, because they are significant funding instruments and general practice runs pretty close to the margin. If we were to provide them either a batch payment under the Practive Incentive Program to adopt cloud-based systems that were more capable and interoperable with information, that would be one way. Another way, as we learnt from Paul Wilder from the US, would be to provide incrementally greater reimbursement per occasion of service for people who use these systems, and that wouldn't penalise the people who are doing it today, but would create some sort of profit motive. And then in turn, over time, we could look at potentially withdrawing some of those incentives for people who hadn't shifted across. So does a stake need to be put in the ground around this? I think it would be healthy rather than use the threat of regulation to say if you're not doing the right thing you'll get in trouble to actually provide an incentive to say yes we will help you now and then at some point in the time, and this is where the state comes into the ground, maybe at that time we look at um, providing some sort of repercussions for people who haven't adopted these technologies. Because I believe it does map to a standard of care. If you are using systems that can't exchange information freely with primary and acute care, then your standard of care is compromised. So we shouldn't be providing enabling frameworks for people who operate outdated models and I think five years is a sensible time frame to allow people to get on board with some of these important new technologies. I'm Edwina Wankart, CEO of PEN. We work with patient to population health management technology solutions uh, across Australia. Do we need to put a stake in the ground? Of course we need to put a stake in the ground. Uh, you know, this is what we're here for. We're here to aspire to, to do things better and to deliver better technology solutions. And I, I don't think interoperability is the challenge actually. Technically, we're very capable. The biggest challenges that we're still facing is around governance and commercial models. And you know, how do we fund the system to want to make change? So these are questions that keep getting asked though, you know, it's the accountability, the governance, the commercial models. I feel like those questions keep getting thrown around at these sort of conferences. 
What's the solution? Is there a solution? Well, it's a tiered uh, conversation. I mean, that's a big question to ask you. What are your thoughts, though? I mean, what's your, what's your gut around this? If we go back to the fundamentals, we need to look at the patient and how to empower individuals and how to create an environment that they want to be more proactive in their healthcare. And then we need to ask ourselves if the system we're designing does that, does it enable individuals? Uh, providers are there to support individuals, but at the moment we spend a lot of time on treatment and how do we move to preventative healthcare. And so preventative healthcare is the goal of all of our solutions. And that means we need to put a bit more into primary care and we need to be able to enable whole patient journey modelling and patient risk stratification and therefore patient-centred advice and guidance at point of care. And if we can do that, accompanied by change management, communication campaigns, programs and the right service delivery, hopefully we can start to shift the needle towards preventative healthcare. Do you think there's enough patient-centred design happening at the moment? People are trying to move towards patient-centred design, but it does require a huge shift in the way everything's being created to date. Definitely in some areas, you know, we have some great patient-centred, longitudinal views of, of patient journeys, and that can start to inform this shift. The patient was, rightly, at the heart of all conversations about technology, but there was some chat about what is the best approach for patient consultation and how much of it is optimal. Cynthia Stanton, I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Northern Sydney PHN. How important is it for our digital services to be designed around patient needs? Oh, it's, it is, has to be the driving factor for not just digital but for how health system service design happens as well. It is, it is absolutely paramount. So I mean, we were just talking then too around how we can start to, to incorporate that into how services are designed and I think you know we're moving towards things like patient reported measures, whether it's experience or outcome. I think they're really powerful ways for how the system can then start to uh, incorporate that and digital is a big part of that as well. Do you think that uh, one of the comments was that with my health records there was ineffectiveness or of that product because there was too much uh, consultation or was driven too strongly by the consumer. Do you, what's your take on that side of things? It's really complex. It's, it's health system is really complicated. I think when you try and centralise something, you're only going to be able to please certain sectors and certain numbers of cohorts. You know, so I look, I, I sympathise with that. I think it's got a, a place in the health system, and I think it, it it opened up the conversations. I guess we needed to have about sharing information and sharing health data. So if it achieved that, then I think that's still a step forward. What are the driving questions for you, or the frust driving frustrations for you in this whole cloud summit? Oh look, I mean, I'm, my head is in healthcare reform at the moment, and I think one of the my frustrations in on the ground, you know, health service design and getting people to to work differently. The key, so definitely, it has to be uh, designed around the patient. But I think key too is designing the right models of care. Uh, and at the moment, healthcare models tend to be, particularly in primary care, oh look, in hospital as well, tend to be designed and and driven around the way a service is funded, which is really challenging. And that, you know, at the end of the day, the business has to be viable, um, but if we could if we could really have some real funding reform, I think that might help things. What does funding reform look like? 
Oh, look, um, I think we need to move away from, from funding for volume, which is effectively what MBS and ABF does. I think we need to start to move towards... what We need to map out what does funding for outcomes look like. I think we're a long way off that. But what are the steps we need to do to get to, to, get to that stage? And I think a lot of that comes with digital and data and being able to, to measure outcomes in the, in the first place. And we can't manage what we don't measure, so data's central to it all. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. Absolutely pivotal. And when the chat turned to funding, fortunately, there was an expert at hand. I'm Stephen Dackett. I'm an honorary professor at the University of Melbourne. What's your take on everyone saying there needs to be an overhaul of the funding model to make all of this happen? So everybody has said that for a very long time. Uh, we've, we've known for the last, I suppose, decade, maybe more, that the fee-for-service model, especially in general practice, is probably no longer fit for purpose. And what we need to move is a, it towards is a blended payment model, blending fee-for-service, uh, capitational uh, arrangements, and possibly also pay-for-performance arrangements. What the right balance of all that is, we don't know. But what's really good is over the last five years, the major medical professional associations, the AMA, the College of GPs, have indicated they support voluntary patient enrolment. So it's a major shift that's happening which opens up the potential for major funding reform. Do you think that we federally and in our states have enough money to implement major reform right now? Well, it's, it is a bit complicated because I think general practice is underfunded in this country relative to uh, procedural specialties especially, and so more money needs to go in. Now, the good news is the new government has committed $250 million a year as a down payment uh, to actually start that process. I think more will need to go in, but at least they've signalled they're going to put money where their mouth is. Do you have any other insights that have occurred to you while you've been at the Cloud Summit today? I think, you know, what we've heard today is lots of um, innovations which have been stymied because of the either the funding constraints or the perceived funding constraints, and they are different, but I think... We need, we've, I think, now got a, a government which has signalled that it's ready to change. And I think the public trusts the Labor Party more with fiddling with Medicare than they trust the coalition. So I think there is an opportunity to move forward on some of these innovations which we need to adopt. Crossing our fingers. Crossing our fingers. And then I cornered our guest speaker, Paul Wilder, Executive Director at Commonwealth Health Alliance in the United States. So Commonwealth is one of the largest vendor agnostic health data exchanges in the USA and part of the charge of a health data sharing revolution in the US of A. They currently provide data for around 170 million unique patients at a speed of 30 million documents a week. Now, I asked Paul Wilder if he'd have any wise advice for the Australian industry. We ended up having a bit of a long chat. If you look at what's going on here versus the United States, uh, there's some things we're behind on, some things you're behind on or ahead, whichever you want to look at it. Um, I think the one thing that I that, that's interesting, and this kind of goes to the Commonwealth theme, is I think you can leverage vendors more than you realize, right? They... they they have an interest in helping their consumers do the right thing, the, the providers, GPs, hospitals, et cetera. And long-term, it's in their best interest that the way they do that is more standardized. On the surface, at first, it looks like setting up interfaces and the professional service dollars that come along with doing a lot of things over and over again seems attractive. 
Long term, though, it's easier to support a standardized model, and it leads to more scale at the same time. So you wind up with a win-win on both sides if you do it right. So the vendors at the moment, many of them feel kind of pared down to the bone. There's no, there's no extra fat to do anything other than just keep up with what's going on. How can that be remedied when extra change is still required? Competition is a beautiful thing, right? So, you know, I heard a lot of people talking about like putting the stake in the ground. I'm not really for like a government defined standard of exactly what to do. Uh, but government hints that people should shape up is helpful. Um, certifying things to a certain level helps a fair amount too. What we found in the United States, this is going back to like meaningful use, and this is not really Commonwealth's before that, was setting the standard of the minimum functionality set at the EHR forced an up-leveling of the, the not, people didn't replace their EHRs, but it made their existing EHR get to that level, and they stayed there and then accelerated past what the government was asking for. So I do think there is still need to be something to be said for that, because once you get there and start getting things that are interoperable, you want more of it. And it cycles on itself without it being necessarily disruptive to their roadmap uh, and to kind of what they do. It becomes a part of the normal routine things they upgrade. And it's not really necessary to be part of the fat. It's part of the stake, not part of the fat. Do you have similar challenges with funding across state and federal in the states? I guess oh. similar is not the right word, but how does that integrate and impact on vendors? It's a great question. I, I don't think that most of the vendor stuff, it, it's unfunded. It's funded by... We're, it's we're, purely commercial, isn't it? Yeah, because we're, we're a very different uh, payment and delivery model than, than Australia. Yeah, yeah. Heard a great explanation once by the United States. It's all for, like, it's private, private, which is commercial insurance, commercial delivery of services, public, public, which is the veteran, veteran affairs is a classic example. Like, they are employees of the federal government to, you know paid for by taxpayer dollars you have cash pay like every every country has some version of cash pay uh, and then we have the mix of, of public private where you have medicare as a public program paying for private delivery of services so we have the pleasure of doing every model possible and yet we still made interop work so uh, you, you think about that like we we should be we should appear to be such a mess that it's not possible so you actually have a more controlled model, right? So you do have everything is, well, not everything. You have a small amount of private. Most of it's public funded. You just have two sources of the public funds. Interestingly enough, we have two sources on the Medicaid side. So a lot of people don't know this outside the United States. Medicare pays for the elderly population. So you get past your, your retirement age, everything's covered by federal government. So the biggest payer is public. The other public payer is in the same department called Medicaid. And that does the, uh, the really poor of the country. That's actually delivered through states. So the federal government pays 50% of the state bill, but the state gets that money to use to deliver in their states. So we do actually have this federal state thing already. It's just that traditionally Medicaid is underfunded in most states, with some exceptions like California and New York, which actually pay pretty well compared to normal commercial rates. We have some ongoing conversations in Australia about we need to all be interoperable, we need to have reform, and these conversations keep going around and around and around. COVID has obviously disrupted that in a in a positive way for advances that we have been making, as in the, the states as well. What's going to be the next big disruption to push us all forward? 
Well, I hope it's innovation at the, at the edge. Uh, interestingly, it's funny, telehealth and interoperability in the same sentence, because that's actually one of the most uh, obtuse, one of the most non-interoperable systems we have. True, yeah. We ran so fast to get telehealth going, we never asked the question of how do we get the data back from telehealth yeah. back to the GP, so when we do open the offices again, yeah. is that data available? And vice versa, why isn't the GP data available to the telehealth provider to have some history of the patient the second that phone call starts, right? Yeah. The, the conversation starts from that episode of care, the conjunctivitis, the, the, the sore throat, as opposed to you have a history of this because you have a history of asthma and post-nasal drip. Is it allergy season by you? Like, you know, what, what are we doing here versus prescribing more drugs that may not be necessary? So it's, it's actually a shame that we had COVID hit, telehealth exploded, but we didn't have the standards in place to make the telehealth products already be interoperable the second they, they balloon. Well, I think we would, some would argue that we did have the standards, they just hadn't been legislated, regulated. Correct. Yeah, correct. And, and that's where the do we need a stake in the ground comes from. Perhaps, you know, there's a couple of aspects to that. One can be carrot stick, this is, you know, stake in the ground's a big stick, but it could also, it could also be that this is now the standard going forward. Yeah, the U.S. did mostly carrots, right? So they started out meaningful use, paying for providers to adopt EHRs. Yeah. Interestingly, it wasn't that, at least the stuff I did, I worked on primary care provider adoption and meaningful use products and my, my first thing at New York Health Collaborative. And I had 5,107 providers I had to get up to meaningful use. Most of them already had an EHR, but it wasn't certified yet. So it was uplifting to a common standard of what an EHR really is. So they didn't change their their product. Nope. It was the vendors who uplifted. Yeah, most most of it was keeping existing vendor and uplifting. The vendors thought it would be an opportunity to start replacing, and some of that happened, but not the scale anybody expected. After that, though, they maintained that certification. It's voluntary. They don't have to have it, but it's attached to other programs. So other carrots popped up that said, if you're using a certified product and you're interoperable with it, you get extra points on this scale or that scale. What were some of those other carrots? What were some of those other scales? Well, for example, uh, we have a quality improvement program uh, in the United States that pays for Medicare bonus money if you are obtaining a certain level of quality. And the quality wasn't just clinical outcomes. It this was is also, for uh, clinicians, for doctors. Yes, yeah, yes, right. so hospitals and, and, yep. and, and GPs too. Right. And if you maintain, the quality wasn't just clinical outcomes, because that's actually hard to measure at scale. It was operational outcomes too. One of them was, are you being a good data citizen? Are you sharing and accessing data with the kind of blind belief, but trust that better data would be better outcomes eventually. And so you got, say, five points in the scale of 100, and once you started getting that, and they uplifted to the next level of you must now be bi-directional as opposed to unidirectional, you didn't want to lose your five points. So you kind of went along for the game, even though it was technically voluntary. So there are ways to do that. What happens though, eventually, if you have enough carrots, they become sticks. Because if your friends have it, and you don't get it, you feel like you're missing something. Why is my neighbor down the street getting an extra 5% on his bills when I'm not? Kind of a stick. Uh, you know, because you're losing money. Uh, so it's a, it's, an, it's a um, iron fist in a velvet glove, maybe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, you can look at this all up. Psychologically speaking, sticks tend to work better at fast adoption, right? Sticks but make carrots people, are more enduring. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, people get really upset when they lose the carrots, which almost makes it a stick. 
Yeah. Any other thoughts, insights? I mean, you've just flown <laughs> from the States that arrived this morning. Your yep. brain's probably fried, but I give you more credit than uh-huh. that. Anything else that's popped into your head in conversations that you go, hey, that's interesting? Uh, what I what I found interesting is not related to interop or any of that stuff that I came here for. Uh, the similarities of the worldwide situation relative to, to staffing shortages is real. We're having the same debates in the United States. Um, you're seeing in other countries with aging populations, there is a legitimate concern that we do not have enough clinicians to do the job without burning them out and making their lives so torturous that they quit and do other stuff. Uh, I think that's a universal problem. I don't know what a good solution is, quite frankly, uh, but you can, you can see it. I, in the United States, we did start to see some specific specialties that did a good job of making sure that their population got uh, more seated with people. Like radiology, there's a radiology shortage. And they did a good job of advertising. That's a good specialty to get into. Do you know into. what they did? Or it was promoting the brand you, of radiology? You know what's, what's interesting about radiology is um, it was well-suited to shift from a male-dominated medical institution to female because um, it is a more 9-to-5 defined job, uh, less emergency care. It also had telehealth embedded for a long time now, right? So tele-reading of radiology at, at home was is very prevalent. You don't have to go into the hospital anymore. So they, they advertised to women, right? That was that was probably the smartest move they made, and, and you saw a shift towards getting uh, more gender equality in that particular specialty. It's not just uh, clinicians. It's not just doctors, medical staff. There's a real need for digital health qualifications, competency, and that's something that's kind of lacking in Australia. Is that something that's also identified in the states? So I think we almost have too much of it. Uh, so we can send them over. Send them over. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's almost this is a good thing in a, in a roundabout way there's almost too much innovation being attempted at digital health and the concern about too much is healthcare is slow right and part of it's designed to be slow it's great to have shock moments where you get to do something better but a great speech by uh, the office of national coordinator which sets the standards for united states healthcare uh dr blumenthal talked about the stethoscope and how it talk uh, it took i think it was four decades to be adopted uh, when it first got invented to when it was a standard you know, tool used in healthcare. And it says, no wonder it's taking us this long to, to adopt digital healthcare. So calm down, this is normal. Uh, but now we're kind of at the other side. We, we've adopted digital, that's across the United States. A couple things are still on paper records are rare. They're, they exist, but they're rare. More and more of them interoperable. I think we're at the, what you call the laggards of these, you know, kind of the marketing scale of getting early adopters, moving to the middle. We're getting close to the late adopters at this point. There's still a lot of them, uh, but they just don't have as much data, right? So there's, there's probably a couple tens of thousands of practices we got to set up. But innovation is coming. We, we have a lot of digital health. I just hope we don't get too scattered shot that we lose focus on the primary thing of how to manage patient care uh, versus all the stuff around the outside that we can do in terms of you know, commercial warfare and, and eking as much revenue and profitability out of healthcare as possible. You guys have a little bit less of that when you have public funding, uh, public supported hospitals, but you can hear it in the GP world when you talk about, you know, it's commission-based with a base salary, kind of that the machine is becomes more important than the services. So you, you got to be careful there, but there's a lot to do. Any final words? 
Well, I'm hospitality. Thanks, thanks for having me out here. I do appreciate it. I, I'm learning a lot, uh, and I ho hope to get back. I think we, there's a lot, to, a lot we can learn if we go across countries. One to realize that the problems are more universally realized, and two to realize that there are many complicated systems and you can get through it. There are there are beacons of light out there. We just have to find them between each other. That last interview together. was with Paul Sounds Wilder, Executive Director, Commonwealth Alliance yeah. USA. And there you have it, Wild Health's inaugural CXO Healthcare Cloud Summit. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for tuning in to the Wild Health Podcast. See you at the next summit. If you've enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Search for Wild Health Podcast on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Please leave us a review. If you've got any news, tips or just want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. Also, visit us at wildhealth.net.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in digital health. And while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and get the heads up on dates for our next summit. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>